You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. Whether you're hunting the back 40 or chasing game deep in the backcountry, the all-new Razor Guide Pack from Outdoor Edge has it all. Coming in at only 12 ounces and in a premium wax canvas roll pack for compact storage and travel, the Razor Guide Pack is seven blades in total, including a 5-inch replaceable blade folding knife, a 3-inch replaceable blade caping knife, and the flip and zip saw for wood or bone. For more information, visit OutdoorEdge.com. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin-cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of the Nine Finger Chronicles podcast. I'm your host, Dan Johnson. I only have nine fingers. That's why the name of this podcast is called the Nine Finger Chronicles. Now, why does that matter? It doesn't. It doesn't matter at all. It's just the title because I have nine fingers. Therefore, I titled the podcast Nine Fingers. You get it. You get it. All right. So we got a good episode today, right? And the theme of this podcast is about purchasing land, you know, hunting land. And so there's no better person to talk to than a loan officer. Right, and today we're going to be talking with Cody Kaiser. He lives in Kansas. He is the v, uh, the vice president of a bank. He's a loan officer at that bank, and he talks to us about all the tips and tricks and and what to expect when applying for a loan, um, the different styles and kinds and types of loans that you can apply for that may make it easier for you to get land, and then what kind of hoops you may expect to jump through to get certain types of loans right and so um, if you're just going to have a a piece of property to hunt that piece of property um, you know you won't be able to get any type of special loans but if you say you are an owner operator and you're going to plant some corn or some beans or do you know some some certain things uh, maybe run cattle then you might have an opportunity to apply for uh, different loans and some of those loans are you know uh, government backed and they have lower interest rates and you may be able to get cheaper money as Cody puts it so um, it's a really good episode you I learned a lot the first half of the episode is uh, me and Cody uh, BSN about Kansas we talk about how there is like a, a small bodied uh, genetic in certain parts of gen- uh, of Kansas that runs up through Oklahoma and uh, Texas uh, we talk about 
how close is too close when hunting the, the property borders. We talk about trespassers. We talk about a whole bunch of different things about Kansas. And then we get into the meat and potatoes of the episode, which is about purchasing lands and loans uh, available for that. It's a unique episode. It's an educational episode. I hope you guys enjoy it. Uh, I know that at some point in my life, I would love to be a landowner. I would love to own some some portion of land that I could hunt, uh, whether that's you know a 20 or a 40, and then slowly start to sell and, I don't know, sell it and then move it from like a 40 to a 60, from a 60 to an 80, from an 80 to a 100, whatever the, whatever you know, jumps that a guy could possibly make, but it just becomes difficult every single year. And I, I explained to this, that the 20% uh, that I need to have a, you know, for a down payment keeps going up and it keeps going up and it keeps going up. And so that 20% for the same amount of acreage, you know, as land prices, especially in the County that I live in, they just exploded. And there's no way that you're going to get your money back on a land purchase anymore, uh, especially in this county uh, from the price of farming or whatever. So uh, very interesting conversation. Let's get into the commercials real quick. Tethered. If you are looking for a saddle, go check out Tethered uh, Nation, tetherednation.com. Tethered has, you know, very high quality saddles, climbing sticks, platforms, all the saddle hunting accessories that you need. Uh, so do me a favor, go over there and, uh, check out tethered wasp archery discount code for wasp archery is NFC two zero. That's 20% off NFC two, uh, two zero. Most of their heads are still made in America. I'm a huge fan of the jackhammer and the boss four blade fixed blade. Uh, please go check out all their mechanical and fixed blade options. Uh, wasparchery.com vortex optics. Uh, not only do they have a killer line, lineup of optics, and we're talking spotting scopes, rifle scopes, range finders, binoculars, and red dots. Uh, they also have their uh, Vortex gear line, and it's a, it's a lifestyle brand. It's an apparel line. Awesome t-shirts, jackets, raincoats, sweaters, hoodies, uh, baseball caps, even socks. And uh, it's, it, it is, it's a legit I mean, it's, it's legit, very comfortable, very affordable. And so go check out, you can find all that on uh, vortexoptics.com. And then we have hunt stand. It, as far as hunting app goes, not only is hunt stand the most affordable, but with the, all the functionality that it offers, it is also the uh, most popular and it's popular for a reason because it has updated satellite imagery. It has, um, the, all the, all the good stuff, right? All the stuff that, that the core, the baseline stuff that you need, like property owner information, uh, you know, property boundaries, public and private land options. And then it also allows you to upgrade to the pro whitetail platform, which is the, the next level for serious bow hunters or uh, serious whitetail hunters. So go check out huntstand.com. And last but not least, the old Woodman's Pal. Uh, this machete or this habitat tool, if you haven't gone to their website and, and checked it out, woodmanspal.com, uh, I can see myself keeping this on my hip 
during the summer months to uh, clear out some shooting lanes, maybe to hack some some poison ivy vines or hack some uh, shooting lanes to hack vines that have grown up over my trail cameras, chop some grass out of the way. Just a, a, a handy tool that should be left in your truck or you can put in your pack and take it anywhere you go just in case you need a, a, a heavy duty machete type product. And uh, there's only one way to find out what that is. Oh, well, first off, it's made in America. So that you know the durability is there. And then uh, it's the company itself has been around since 1941. And so, again, that's a long time. And uh, you can tell just by holding it in your hand that it's, it's very well crafted, very well manufactured. And uh, it's been around lo- that long for a reason. So, woodmanspal.com. Uh, and that's it. If you want to do me a big favor, please go support the companies that support this podcast. Um, Let them know that you heard about their their company and their products through the Nine Finger Chronicles. And that just comes full circle. And then these guys work with me again. And then I can get paid by them. And then I can continue to put out free content. So uh, if you are... If you guys have any questions about the products that we discussed today, hit me up on Instagram and I'll give you my honest feedback. No doubt, honest feedback. All right, commercials are over. Let's get into today's awesome podcast with Cody Kaiser. Three, two, one. All right, on the phone with me today, Mr. Cody Kaiser. Cody, how we doing, man? Good, how are you, Dan? Doing good, doing good. All right, so first off, we're gonna we're just gonna get right into it. Where do you live, and what do you do for a living? I live in uh, Kansas, I'm kind of south central, southeast, kind of on that line. Um, and I am a vice president of ag and commercial lending at a community bank. Oh, okay, perfect. Hence, why you're on the podcast today. We're going to talk about purchasing land uh, here in a little bit. Um, and now. Let's see, Kansas. I applied for Kansas this year, and I am like on pins and needles, just kind of waiting to see. I already drew South Dakota. I have one preference point when I applied. So from everybody else that I've talked to, it seems like I have really good chance of hunting Kansas this year. Yeah, typically from from everything I've heard, um, one one preference point is pretty well. Yeah going to get you there but two i think two is kind of a for sure deal which is really crazy for us i mean yeah. as far as that goes i that's kind of a new deal for yeah for kansas and i've got some outfitting customers that uh have have dealt with uh, reduced tag numbers because of things like that so yeah yeah for sure uh let's see here um southeast kansas my uncle lives in, in southeast kansas uh if you've listened to the podcast you probably know that um Mm -hmm. talk to me a little bit about southeast kansas or or the areas that you hunt in kansas from a whitetail standpoint and and talk about like here i'll just say this southeast kansas and kansas in general i feel like you have the opportunity similar to iowa to run into a giant if if you play your cards right is that a true statement are there are there parts of kansas that are better better than others yes and no it depends on what you're looking for um i will say kansas you can find big racked deer Mm kind of all across the state in pockets i mean obviously it's you know 
in like any other big buck state, Iowa, Ohio, any of those, they're they're out there. Um, the area that I'm at, we're kind of at the foot of the at the end of the foothills, the Flint Hills, rather. Sorry, and um, we are far more cattle country, and yeah. um, with the I, I don't know what it is, but I had talked to um, Brandon Adams about it uh, in the past. Um, our little pocket right here at the the end of the Flint Hills is has some of the smallest bodied deer in the state. Um, we they can still get some some really nice racks on them, but as far as body size go, they're this pocket or this area, and I and I don't know what it is, but uh, Brandon had tried to explain it to me that uh, something about the genetics. And how um, it runs, kind of, um, it kind of starts up here and then runs down through Oklahoma and into Texas. It's just a, a smaller, smaller-bodied uh, variety of, of whitetails, huh. um, with this kind of, kind of different. And and I had never, I guess, really paid attention to that. But as far as rack size, yeah, I mean, you can. And I'll be the first to say that you know everybody's like, oh, you can kill a 150, 160 every year, and it's like, mm, yes and no. I mean those are definitely out here and and um but I, I don't want everybody you know i don't want everybody to think that there's a, a boon and crockett behind every tree so oh yeah well that's not the case even in southern iowa so um as far as the deer population is concerned right here's what i it's it's good that you said this right you have this little outshoot of smaller bodied deer that comes up into uh, you know, into Kansas. I used to think Kansas was a big bodied deer state. You know, I used to think, you know, mm-hmm. that it would be, it's, it's a, it's a, a regular occurrence for someone to shoot a 300 pounder or see a 300 pounder. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I've shot one 300 pounder here in Iowa, but when it comes to Kansas, I also have heard, and, and most of this information comes from my uncle, they have, you know, they have the big antler deer. They have an older age class. But the quantity of deer is, is not as much. Is that what you see where you're where you're at? Mm, kind of, sort of. It's it, Again, man, it's it's kind of out there being in cattle country. We've got pockets. Yeah. Um, I mean, because there's some areas that, I mean, yeah, you're going to see deer there. But, you know, on a good day, you might see five six ten deer and then there's other pockets where if you're there on on you know pretty much any given day you're gonna see anywhere between 15 and 20. yeah um so again this area kansas is kind of different than um a lot of other places i I would almost and i'm probably gonna get some hate mail for this but i would almost put it more kind of on like the western side of the state as mm-hmm. far as quantity goes just because um with it being cattle country and and you know running timber draws and and bottoms and stuff like that these deer are, are have bigger home ranges they're spread out more yep. um, and i think that does kind of decrease uh the density of them but like i said in pockets you know if you get you get some of the stuff where it's um like our property is is overgrown cattle pasture that uh, got turned into a hunting property that's you know we got quite a few deer but just south of us you know those people have kind of cleared out some of their stuff and i don't see near as many deer um 
on their stuff is I do along the other open uh, pastures right along the timber draws and stuff. So it's, it's, I was going to say, I, I, they're just, they're in pockets. Right. I guess. It's, yeah. Man, you know, I've hunted in, I've hunted in, in a active farm for several years, right? Horses. Um, and then once the crops come out, the cattle move in and they're in the, you know, the picked beans or they're in the picked, the picked cornfield and they bring the hay in. So it's definitely, it's definitely an active farm. It, what's the trick? And I, I mean, how, how much of an impact do cattle actually have on deer deer movement i mean if there is let's just say there's a pasture with cattle in it are they are they going into there or are they staying out no they'll be in there um and you know we've kansas is obviously a bait state it's legal here uh, on private property and on on one of the the farms that we've hunted um that guy runs he he puts deer on there or sorry puts cattle on there all deer season so he puts them in there basically october 1st and runs them all through they winter on that piece and so we we had to fence off little areas where we had feeders and um just to try to concentrate the deer and give you know some type of similar of uh, way to to pattern them because it was just yeah. it's wide open country yeah. um but they would come in and if cows walked by or something like that they'd run off and they'd be gone cows would meander around they'd pass on through and you know five ten minutes later the deer come right back out yeah um as far as traveling uh what i've what i've seen is if the cattle are in one area and the deer need to go they'll just they'll just move around them I mean, yeah. they don't, they're not going to walk right through them or nothing, but I mean, they're not going to, uh, I guess they're, they're not going to totally avoid that area. Gotcha. Gotcha. What's the soil like there out of curiosity? Uh, it, heavy clay, um, probably clay loam combination. Um, not real great, but not, not the worst, I guess yeah. is it, it, it's, Again, it depends on the the area you're in. If if you're in, um, get a little bit closer to the Flint Hills, it gets pretty rocky, mm-hmm. um, and and that heavy clay is uh, gets real hard to kind of do anything in. Yeah, yeah. What is it about Kansas that you feel makes it one of the the states that that some would call the upper echelon uh, of of whitetail hunting? I would have to say that, you know, us being a one buck state probably helps with that. Mm-hmm. Um, the amount of ag that we have and uh, I would say probably the ability to, to get them in most cases, you got a little bit older age class, but again, that's in pockets as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and I can I can contradict every one of those things yeah. with with personal experiences and stories as well to where you know where we're at. There's a bunch of outfitters down here, and and there's a bunch of people from the Northeast that come back down here and hunt. Mm-hmm. And you know they've they've never seen a big a decent bodied deer or a decent rack deer, and they're shooting the first year and a half, two and a half year old deer that they see that's got 
you know, eight or more points on it and thinking yeah. that it's a giant. And it's like, man, if you just let that deer go a couple more years, he probably could have been, yeah. you know, uh, or at least on his way. Right. Um, and so that's, I, 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 I don't know, man, it's kind of, cause you can see that everywhere. I mean, I was, got lots of ag country um and you guys are a two buck state and you guys still have damn big deer um and it's probably you know i mean obviously it's it's probably the pinnacle of of deer hunting so i i don't know if us being a one buck state does that or if it's just the diversity um kind of across the state because we do have farm country and cattle country kind of intermixed and intertwined and maybe the that uh allows these bucks to kind of stay hidden i don't i'm not exactly sure but i would i would i mean i could make an argument for every one of those things i guess yeah so landowners they don't get an extra tag it's just nope. one buck all year round whether and correct me if i'm wrong it's only one buck for and that's for all year right you you can mm-hmm. shoot it with a rifle during the rifle season or you can take it with a bow during archery season Correct. The way the resident works is, is we have, um, what they call any deer, any season tag. Okay. So, um, that's our antlered deer permit. Um, and then we can also buy game tags, which are our antlerless tags as well. But yeah, we get, we get one, one buck tag. Um, that's for everybody in the state residents and non-residents. And then, uh, the only way that you can, um, which again, it only is only one per person, but say that, um, my brother and I, we only own 80 acres, but if we owned 160 acres, um, we could each get a landowner tag. You're allowed one landowner tag per 80 acres that you own. Um, but again, that's, that's still only like one person's tag. So if I hunted and my brother did not hunt, I would still only be able to get one tag, but I could get a landowner tag at a reduced rate. Okay. Okay. So the possibility to kill uh, multiple bucks it is there in the state. It's just you have to own over 80 acres, 80 acres or more. Um, no, you, you could still only kill one buck. It's just whoever owns the land um, you can oh, get. So like, oh, okay. Like so you wouldn't buy a state tag, you would buy your landowner's tag. Correct. Okay. Correct. All right. Sounds good. And, and it's still one buck. All right. So it's the yeah. same tag just at a, as as a, at a discounted rate because you're a landowner. Right. Okay. Right. All right. Exactly. All right. Makes sense. Um, on the on the farm that you hunt specifically, talk to me about what a a typical buck is, or or your goal every year. You know what. What's the, what's the buck that you're trying to shoot every year? Um, we've tried to, our property is constantly a work in progress. Um, we're trying to manage it, obviously, um, you know, create better habitat and that kind of deal. Um, and, and our goal is really just age. Um, we don't necessarily have a, you know, antler goal you know as far as size um really we're just trying to shoot mature deer okay um and and right now for as 
dependent, I guess you could say. Um, we are uh, on the neighbor's crop rotation and uh, bedding cover and browse and that kind of stuff. Deer really just kind of pass through our property mainly. Um, and that's why we're trying to improve it to kind of hold some of those and, and get more of them here. Uh, but anything, you know, typically we would like to shoot five and a half or older, but typically if it's four and a half or older, we're kind of going after it. Yeah. Um, and we've even chose to go after some three and a half year olds. Um, frankly, we probably shouldn't have, but we, we have because of the size of them and the way that people hunt around us, um, whether that be legally or illegally. Mm -hmm. Um, but yeah, there's, there has been a few instances where, you know, I, I hate to say it, but it's like, you know, if everybody's like, well, if, if, if I don't shoot them, my neighbor will. And it's like, well, sometimes, sometimes we're that neighbor too. Um, yeah. and I think everybody is in certain instances, but I mean, that's a fair statement. Uh, yeah. Anything. That's a fair yeah. statement. Uh, I mean, obviously, I mean, for, for me to pass up a certain caliber of deer, like, you know, you know, there, there's, there's this, there's, uh, uh, what I call a teeter totter right about, right about one forty five four year old, anything less than that, I'm probably going to pass. But if it's right a, around there, man, I'm, or, or it's, you know, obviously I want it to be a four year old, but if it's anything close to that, or it looks good at, it, let's say 145 inch eight pointer versus 145 mm-hmm. inch 10 pointer. We're talking a little bit different of an animal there as far as rack size is concerned. Right. But, but you know, I'm, I'm in the mode where like, if it's close, I'm going to, I'm going to probably shoot it. If it's close to what, what my goals are, I'm going to probably shoot it. Or if it's close mm-hmm. to the caliber uh, of deer that I'm currently chasing, I'm probably going to shoot it. And so I, this new farm that I got access to this year is 100 percent uh if i don't shoot it they will shoot it type scenario because the guy told me hey yeah uh, you know we i only try to shoot 160s well then i get i get to talking to him and he's like well i let my buddies hunt here as well and mm-hmm. you know and they're shooting 140s and so he yep. was trying to talk me into passing one like anything less than 160 meanwhile he's letting guys on his property shoot 140s and so, if, exactly. you know, if there's a stud four-year-old, like if I, if I owned the other farm or if I had access to both farms, I'd probably let that buck walk. But now that I know that in the late season, this deer is going to get smoked, I'm definitely, I'm definitely shooting them. So, uh, right. you know, so I don't know, is what it is. And it's kind of a personal preference and everybody changes their mind every single year, unless you, unless you are that, that large acreage landowner who can pass deer and you know they're not going anywhere they're just going to stay exactly. on, on your property so well and that's that's kind of what we've ran into man is I, I we've had years um where we've had several good bucks show up um and it really again it just kind of depends on who's in the neighborhood but um you know on the years that that um our neighbor has corn I don't get any early season picture of deer, like yeah. none, like no velvet pictures. And until that corn is cut, we don't, I, I mean, it's, it's a crapshoot. So it's like, yeah. we don't even typically hunt early season. Um, 
because we open up i think typically like the second saturday or something like that in september so it's like a september 14th 17th somewhere in there kind of time frame um but if there's still corn on the neighbors it's not i mean we don't even it's not even worth messing with um but if they have beans then we get really good velvet pictures uh so depending on some of that stuff and then like i said we've got neighbors that basically hunt 15 yards off of our fence line um and we've man there's been i'm trying to think of what year it was it might have been four or five years ago we had probably six deer get shot by the by the neighbors surrounding us that i that i knew of mm-hmm. um and some of those were three and a half year olds that were pretty studly you know coming up would have been great great deer uh to keep around and ones that we had passed um and then some of those were older deer that we were targeting and stuff like that and you know, I can I, I can shoot you picture after picture after picture. Um, like, yep, the neighbor killed this one on this day. The neighbor killed this one on this day. This guy over here shot this one. Right. You know, and it was, I mean, I don't even think we shot a buck that year because everything that we were after just got hammered. Yeah, yeah. Th- those are always tough conversations. To have. Are you in communication with the surrounding landowners to talk with them about what, they're shooting versus what you're shooting and and what you're trying to do versus what they're doing um kind of sort of because a lot of the landowners out there um at least right at least within you know our immediate uh borders none of them actually hunt um they've all got it leased out okay Okay. So so now you have a, a uh, complete yeah. another a complete different dynamic, right? Exactly. And so I'm leasing this property. I can do whatever the hell I want to type scenario. Yep. Right. Right. Yep. Especially if they're short-term leases. Are are is it roughly the same people hunting it the same year? They like have long-term leases or is it short-term? Um it seems to be a little bit of both. Somebody will lease it, you know, for two, three, four, five years, maybe. Um, and then it's like they move on and go somewhere else. Mm-hmm. Um, or typically out there, what's happened is the older older generation has um, passed on. Mm-hmm. And now, you know, their kids are taking stuff over. And so they're like, you know, we, we're either going to raise the price on this or we're going to sell it or something yeah. like that. So it's typically changing hands uh, on multiple multiple fronts as far right. as either um leases or landowners themselves or, or different things so it's kind of been a, a kind of both i would say right okay so yeah that's a that's a a difficult conversation to have especially if you're rotating through different people every so often um what does the the guy who actually owns the property say does he even care one way or the other about age no. class? No. No. no, no, no. He's basically every landowner out here is like, oh yeah, I saw a good deer over here, and I saw a good one over there. You know, shoot them all. And it's like, yeah. uh, well, we don't really want to do that. It's, <laughs> it's like we're, we're we're trying to get we're trying to get you know a, a good herd established. Right. And yeah, we shoot. You know, we all try to shoot a you know two to three does a year to kind of help keep the population in check. But uh, you know these these farmers out here, they're just, you know, they're the good old boys that, yep. you know, they, 
if they felt like deer hunting, they're going to take their rifle out. And when they're feeding cows, if they see a deer, they're going to shoot it. And as long as it's quote unquote deer season, whether yeah. that be archery season or any other, you know, they don't care. They don't give a shit. They're just, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's my land. I'm going to do what I'm going to do. And right. that's how it is. Right. You brought up a interesting question and I always have this internal debate and that is from a stand placement, right? I've heard stories of guys, you know, for example, uh, I'm not going to say an example. How close is too close when it comes to stands and fence lines and property borders? Dude, that's a sticky, very, very sticky situation. Exactly. I mean, I don't know. I just, yeah, man. Um, I, I guess it boils down to the ethics of the person. Right. Um, and the reason I say that is because we've had instances on our property where I am 99.79% sure that the neighbor trespassed on our property. Mm -hmm. And I know this because my trail cameras were turned off and the memory cards were cleared out oh, and shit. they were anywhere between a week to two weeks behind the other cameras. Okay. Cause typically, you know, when I, when I run cameras, um, I'll, I'll go pull all the cards at once, uh, put new cards in and go back to the cabin and, and go through the cards. Um, and there's been multiple instances where, um, uh, like our ground blinds, my brother and I leave all the windows open in our ground blinds. Uh, there's been times where we've gone out there and all the windows were zipped back up. Yeah. Um, there's been other times where, um, before my, my grandpa passed away and he would rifle hunt out there, we would set his blind up when we'd set our stuff up, but we'd leave all the windows closed because grandpa wasn't going to use it until rifle season, right. which is in December. So, you know, later in November or whatever, we'd go open the windows up for him and kind of get the deer used to it. But we'd try to keep it closed up before that. Mm -hmm. And there were times we'd go by there in, you know, October, early November, and the windows are open. Um, and then, like I said, the trail camera thing, that, um, it, and it just seems like the places where people are close to fences, um, they're running feed or putting feed out in areas that's like the farthest away from where our feed is. Um, and so, like I said, that's to me, I guess that's kind of borderline on if, if that's the ethical thing to do, yeah. but you know, but, and we can sit here and piss and moan about it all you want, but to each yeah. their own, you know, it's, yeah. it's legal. So yeah. And that's, that's the issue. That's the issue that I'm going to be running into this year. So I've had, I have one full season under this new farm. I know how the deer leave this block of timber that is on the property that I have access to. They come into the wide open and then they cross a fence into uh, egg, an egg field. And that, that mm -hmm. was my late season. However, there's a little strip of trees right along the fence line. I would say... If I put a, a, a stand in a tree, I would get, I would be probably five or 10 feet. So somewhere right in there 
off the fence line. Okay. Now, mm-hmm. could I possibly shoot onto their land? Yes. I, I you know, I, I would have a shot opportunity, but I, I wouldn't do it. Okay. I would, however, be waiting for the deer to come out of this property and I'd be shooting them knowing that when I shoot them, they're going to run onto the neighbors. Right. And so I I don't want to stir the pot, but at the same time, the other hunter, the landowner, he's got a big tower blind and I'm guessing it's about 40 yards off the fence line, 40, maybe 50 (laughs) yards off the fence line. It's there for a reason because he knows that all the deer bed on that prop on the property that I have access to and they come to his ag field. And so that's why there's right. a, t- a tower blind there. And so I'm, I'm like, well, if you're taking advantage of it, why can't I take advantage of it? And so, right. and so I don't know. I just feel like there, there's part of me that understands, you know, cause most people, I, I hate to say I, I wouldn't give the benefit of the doubt, but if a big buck comes by on the opposite side of the fence, I'm saying most people are going to shoot it. Right. I'm right. saying most people. Um, now, I don't know, man. I, 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 it just gets, it just gets real sticky and, mm-hmm. you know, I'll probably avoid doing it because I just don't want any drama. I'll just kill a deer a different, uh, you know, kill a deer a different time. But, I, I know people who have, who they, they, they are so adamant about, hey, you're hunting our fence line, you're hunting my property. Well, if the deer are, are on their property too, you know, like both properties, how is it, mm-hmm. how is it that you're mad at that? You know, the deer could be coming off mine. So whatever, it's just, it's all, yeah. it's all drama. It is, and I, I guess it, you know, going back to the other thing that you could do too is, uh, have you talked to that landowner? Have you tried visiting with him about that? I mean, is there, you know, I guess, have you talked to him about if I shoot a deer and it comes on your property, are you cool with me getting it? I mean, is he going to be a dick about it or is it something that you guys can build a relationship around and everything be okay? I'll be, I'll be completely honest with you. I I called the guy up. I left a message. I believe I accidentally got a hold of his brother first. um, And then I got a hold of him this guy and he was frustrated and I could hear in his voice. He was frustrated and and disappointed that I now have access to a farm that nobody for the past, you know, five years had access to nobody could hunt it. So it's been Mm. a, it's been a straight up honey hole property. I got access to it. And now he's frustrated that there's going to be the potential that, Mm -hmm. that, I'm going to be now, and so I, I said, hey, I just wanted to be, um, you know, be up front with you. I wanted to say, hey, and the reason I called him was because I was getting trail camera pictures of a lot of dogs. And I wanted to call him and say, hey, do you have a dog problem? Because maybe we could handle this together, you know, call, find out where these dogs live, get the landowner to put them on a leash or something. I don't know. But, mm-hmm. but it just sounded like he was more upset that I was hunting there then. And then he also mentioned, say, oh, you got a trail camera right on the fence line. Yeah, it's on the property, right? I can do whatever I want. Why does that bother you? Okay. And so just from the sounds of it, I probably won't be in communication with yeah. him. Just from him, like, just 
I don't know. He just, he just, he said to me, I'm just really disappointed that there's another yeah. runner here. I'm like, okay, well, there's that. <laughs> oh yeah. He's, you can definitely tell he's probably all sorts of butt hurt that you got permission on that property. And he's, yeah. you know, he was either probably been trying to, to get it and didn't yeah. know about it or something like well, that. He's and also, that's... he's also a non-resident. So, so he can't, Ooh. he can't hunt there every year except for the late season. Right. Most of the time you can get a late season tag and I think, uh, he can hunt every late season, but he can't hunt the archery, uh, seasons every year. And that's in a five, mm. a five year unit down there. Right. And so, so, oh, wow. so, and so now a guy comes in and there's a potential that the top, I take the top tier buck out every couple of years. And then he's left with the, whatever's left over. And so I don't know. Just instead of feel, feeling happy, mm. uh, it's another instance of instead of feeling happy for someone, there's greed and jealousy involved. And really, that's what, I mean, this sport is kind of gross that way. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, well, and, you know, kind of back to what we were talking about before, dealing with, um, you know, your neighbors and, and building relationships with people that are leasing it or having permission on us uh, yeah. or on property next to us. I, I, I we became friends um, or acquaintances, I guess, I, depending on how you want to put it. Probably, I'd say we were probably friends um, with the, the the kid and a couple of his buddies that hunted um, on the side of us. And hell, there was times like we even we even went and helped them track deer and yep. and help. We used our ranger to get it out for them, you know, because it was they shot it way back in the timber and they were having troubles tracking it and all that stuff. And you know, they were they're. I wouldn't say that they're new at hunting, but I would say that they're, you know, they've only got a couple of years of experience and that kind of stuff. So they called us, we went and helped. And, you know, there's three of us that went out there and helped them track a deer and pull it out and load it up and hauled it for them. And, you know, I mean, we were happy for them, even though it was a deer that we'd had pictures of, we'd all decided to pass, but it's like, Hey man, you, you do you, if that's, if yeah. that's what makes you happy, you are well within your rights to do that. And I, I'm just as happy for somebody that's doing that. Um, yeah. What pisses me off is the the poachers oh, and yeah. the trespassers or the people that are doing that. You know, that's how they're getting their deer, and that's what pisses me off. Yeah, I deal with that a lot every year down on my main farm that I've been hunting for 14 years. It's like every year there's a giant. Uh, mm. There's a giant that shows up, and every year it just goes missing and, and doesn't show back up the Somehow next year. Somehow miraculously, right? Right. And so you start to hear rumors, and— Oh yeah, so and so, you know, so and so. I I I saw a big buck uh, in this field, standing in this field. Well, if you saw it, then several other people saw it, and then exactly. and then they drive by every night, and then that deer disappears. And it it unf yep. And you know, you can't say you can't say it just disappears. But then you start to hear these rumors. It's like, oh yeah, I saw you know, yeah, one night I saw a guy in the field shining a bright light everywhere. I'm like, uh, what'd you do about it? Oh, nothing. Didn't do anything about it. Okay. Well now we kind of, you know, you start putting in the pieces of the puzzles together. Mm -hmm. There's still some assumptions that are made, but man, I, I feel like my, oh, ma yeah. my, the main farm that I hunt, if I could snap my fingers and go no more poaching and there would be no more poaching, man, I feel like there would be a couple giants every single year on the farm that I have access oh, to. And that's, 
that's how I feel about our place. Yeah. That's exactly how I feel about our place yeah. is it's again, like you said, you, you hear the rumors and you hear people chitting and chatting about certain things and start, like you said, start putting pieces together, man. And it doesn't yeah. take long to, to kind of start figuring that stuff out. And, yeah. or, you know, you'll hear of, Oh, so-and-so shot this deer. And it's like, yeah, I shot it with my bow. And it's like, really did you? And it's, you know, I mean, you're sitting there looking at it. And it's like, there is visibly no arrow wound whatsoever. <laughs> There's no drops of blood anywhere. And you're going, huh, man. Yeah. What, what blows my mind about people like that is let's say they take the shot or they, they kill the deer illegally. And then let's say maybe they do have a tag and or let's say they trespassed and shot it or mm -hmm. they shot it out of season or they shot it. Uh, they poached it from the road or something like that. They they tag it. No one really knows what how they got it. You know, it's basically they're saying they shot it. Well, someone shot it. Then they they go to the taxidermist, they get it mounted and they hang it on their wall. And then other people see that potentially and go, God, that's a good deer. What? How'd you get this one? And then they lie to them. And so every time you talk about that deer, you're lying, not only to yourself, but to whoever, whoever. And after a while, wouldn't you feel like, like just lying all the time about it would suck? I don't know, oh, dude. I couldn't I even know. imagine. I, I feel know. like the biggest asshole just exactly. looking at that deer. Exactly. You know, I couldn't. Yeah, I don't know. I, I, I've never, and and believe it or not, the the couple of deer that I have in my mind thinking about this that have that have happened um, on the neighboring property and the guy that did it, he's got them mounted. He's got them on the wall, yeah. and I know that for a fact because the kids that we were friends with went, went and looked at them. Yeah, and and I'm like, I don't know how you could do that. I would, man. Yeah. I I'd look up at that deer, and I would be. Just but reminded. So yeah, I mean, you would be reminded daily of a crime you've committed, right? Well, yeah, I mean, not right? just that. The fact that, that the fact that you're lying out your ass about it yeah. every quarter. And, well, and some of these people are just dirtbags, man. They're okay with it. I guess they're just okay with being a dirtbag. So. Nah, yeah, yeah. It's you know, again, man. I I, I would much rather have somebody shoot a, a three and a half year old deer that we had passed and be, you know, do it legally and be super stoked about it. Yeah. Than to lose one of our older mature deer to a trespasser or poacher or something like that. And exactly. I, I, I will be, like I said, man, we've gone and helped people look for them. We've helped them drag them out and, and taken pictures with them and, you know, made sure that they got the good picture, you know, like, Hey man, like let's, let's cut the tongue off. Let's clean this up. Let's, yep. you know, wipe off his face. Like, get yourself some good pictures, yeah. you know, and, and help them do all that stuff and been happy for like genuinely happy for them because they yep. were happy. Yep. And it's like, I would much rather do that than, yep. than lose. Even if it's just one of our older, you know, eight, nine pointers, that's just got those big old fat floppy necks, you know, yep. just mature deer. I'd rather do that than lose one of them to a poacher or a trespasser fact fact oh well i guess it's just it's something that people deal with every single day um mm -hmm. all right i want to get i want to start talking a little bit about what you do for a living okay tell us again yes, what your role at the bank is 
uh, I, my title's a vice president, but really what that is is just a glorified loan officer. Um, so I, I deal with uh, ag and commercial lending um, and do all sorts of, of loans. Um, but that's, okay. you know, we do do everything from, like I said, tractor, land, you know, any type of ag loan to commercial building, anything like that. Okay, so if I came to you and said, hey, I want to buy a hunting property, it, does that fall mm-hmm. under ag or is that like recreation? Depends. Okay. Um, if you, if it is an income producing property, mm-hmm. um, it becomes commercial, which ag is under commercial technically. Okay. Um, because, because it, it falls under that income producing. Um, now, if it does not produce income, then it is purely recreational, and that is a different set of circumstances. Okay. So let's say I had a – because I have this podcast and mm-hmm. because I use whatever, I use the content that I get from hunting on said property or potentially could, does that then become a commercial property? It, or you know, does it have a, to – That's mm. – Man, that's splitting hairs. That would be something you would need to talk to like a CPA about. Okay. Um, because I could, you could make that argument both ways. Mm-hmm. So for it being income producing, like you said, it, this is your job. Mm-hmm. The content that you create using that piece of property um, is producing income. So technically that property could be uh, classified as income producing. However, mm-hmm. the other side of that that you could argue against it would be no, the land is just a vessel, essentially. It's just an asset that's sitting there, and you are the one creating the content. Mm-hmm. Therefore, your land is not – it's not generating grains. It's not producing cattle. It's not producing hay, nothing like that. You yourself are, are the one producing the content, um, so that would not be considered into producing. I don't know. Yeah. That's a that's – a, really good avenue to talk to a CPA uh, or an accountant about. Okay. So, so then income producing, right? Uh, CR, does CRP count as income producing? I believe so because it's, that's paid out on a per acre basis usually. Yep, yep. Um, so I want to say that that would be classified as income producing. Yes, okay. I think. And then if I, if I'm the owner, but cash rent out the farm ground, to uh you know a guy who's gonna do a, a, a corn bean rotation is that mm-hmm. that is that would that be considered income producing i believe so yes because okay. i have seen people on their taxes where they will claim um so basically for ag you file what they call a schedule f um which is your income and your expenses um you know so for for like partnerships you file a schedule e um, for corporations, you file Schedule C, that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, but so the Schedule F, I've seen people list rental income as other income, and then um, they're able to write off any of their expenses that they are responsible for. You know, typically, if you're cash renting something, you're basically just giving them, you know, the the rights to um, either farm it or graze cattle on it. Mm-hmm. Now, if they're grazing cattle on it, you might have an agreement in there where they're responsible for taking care of the fences. Mm-hmm. If they're farming it, you might not have an agreement like that. So if you're the landowner, 
they're farming it you could fix the fences and then you could be able to write that expense off because that's part of your responsibility. Right. So it, it, it can go either way. It depends on, on some of the things that are in place, uh, what it's used for, how it's used, that type of stuff. And that's where you kind of get down into the weeds on stuff. And, and somebody like a, a CPA or a, right. an accountant that knows the tax laws knows what you're legally allowed to do. Okay. But from a loan standpoint now, Okay. You're the, you're the loan officer here. Is there a difference in the loan that I would get if I just brought a property and I, all I wanted to do was shoot deer and ride four wheelers on it, as opposed to work the land through farming or graze cattle? Yes. Okay. And the main difference there, uh, would be the types of programs that you can qualify for. Okay. Um, so, um, I'm sure that you're aware of the farm service agency. Uh, I can't talk farm service agency that's under the USDA. Okay. Um, they have programs that people can apply for, which uh, kind of gives them, you know, for lack of a better term, discounted money. Um, they've got more hoops to jump through and things like that, but typically gives them a cheaper interest rate, um, a little more flexibility when it comes to down payments and stuff like that. Um, but those have to be owner operator type transactions. Okay. Um, whereas if you're going to just buy it for recreation, that takes that option completely off the table. You have to deal with a bank nine times out of 10. There's not going to be any way to get around the standard 20% down. Um, and then you have to show that you can pay for that land without any additional income um, coming in because right. it is purely recreational. Uh, whereas somebody who's obviously going to use it for something else uh, that's income producing, they can show that that, that income is going to help make that payment. Gotcha. Okay. Man, this is where, this is where the, we go. The next question is why you reached out to me in the first place. Uh, because I made a comment on another podcast uh, where I don't understand the loan, the, the loan process. Because I could mm -hmm. go to a car, a vehicle, brand new, mm -hmm. $60,000. The second I drive it off the lot, it depreciates, right? And then every year it depreciates, right? But you'll give me that loan with no money down, right? And essentially the bank then holds, uh, holds the title for uh, an asset that is losing value every year, as opposed to land, which is, for the most part, 20 25% down payment, and that asset gains usually every single year or a couple years gains uh, a value. So my question is, what the hell? <laughs> like, that's that's the question. What like I don't understand. I I would think it would be flipped. That as far as well, typically, right? Typically, it's because of the longevity of the asset. Um, so if you think of it in terms of, and there's a I used to know the percentage um, exactly, but I want to say that it's somewhere like forty to somewhere in the range of like forty to sixty percent of people only keep their vehicle three years mm -hmm. so if you finance a vehicle even with zero percent down and you finance it for anywhere from five to 
six, seven years typically nowadays to for the higher uh, priced vehicles, you're only keeping it about half that time anyways before you're getting something new and you're turning it over. Yeah. So that's in in most places now, obviously, you know, big cities, New York, those places, a car is not a, something that you absolutely have to have. Mm -hmm. But for most people in most places, you have to have a vehicle. So that combined with the fact that the longevity of the asset is not near as long, the term of the loan is not near as long, therefore you have a little bit more liberal policies around getting those types of loans. Mm -hmm. And there's generally a little bit more flexibility um, to kind of get around some of that stuff. Yeah. What gets you on land is because very few people are going to finance land in five years. Yeah. Most of those, you know, you're talking usually most cases, minimal 15 year, more times than not 30 year commitment. And that's something that is going to stay around for eternity. You know, land ain't going anywhere. Right. Um, so that's kind of the thought process behind um, why you have to have a down payment for something uh, like land um, compared to a vehicle. Uh, it's usually the longevity of the asset um, and the fact that the time commitment there is is far greater Right. Um, and typically the the value is a lot higher, so the bank has more risk um, involved in the transaction. Mm -hmm. But but does the bank actually have risk? Because if I default on my loan, you've just gained an asset that can be sold for a higher value than what you ended up getting it for. So and yes so, and no. Okay, okay. Are you going to explain that? Yeah. So here's the thing. Um, and I, I'm sure that you're probably aware of this in, in Iowa is you get out of state people that come in and these big money guys, they're out of state. All they want is a deer hunting property yep. and they don't, they don't give a shit about what's going to happen to it. They're going to lease it out for, or cash rent it out or do it on thirds for farming or running cattle or whatever. They will pay because it's going to help them on their taxes. So they will pay whatever the hell they that they want to pay for it. If if they think that that property, you know, if they go to an auction, they'll bid it up until they make sure that they get it bought. But depending upon the neighborhood that it's in, it might not be worth that much money to the farmer or the rancher because they could never make it cash flow. They could never make it pay for itself yeah. by the income that it's going to produce. Yeah. So if that's the case, say – we take over a piece of property, you know, the bank takes over a piece of property. If we turn around and for one, the expense on um, repoing it is a pain in the ass because you have to wait basically 180 days. They have to get behind. They have to get past due. I think it's like 90 days. Then you got to wait another 90 days before you can even start the foreclosure process. So now you're 180 days into it. And then you've got to, you got to go through the whole rigmarole and you've got to post it in certain places. You've got to post it a certain way, um, notify certain people within the county or the city, the county, the state, all that kind of crap, which that starts racking up our expenses. Hours. Yeah. 
the the bank sorry the, it starts racking up the bank is bank's expenses um for all of that plus the legal expertise because you got to have a lawyer to, to deal with it um so then all that gets added back against that loan against that asset and if it's in a neighborhood where the farmers say look yeah that's a that's a piece of property but it's overgrown it's got a crick running through it i can't do nothing with it you know i it's too crowded it's got too many trees for me to to run cattle on and it's got uh it's too hilly or got too many trees for for me to farm it's not worth anything to me well if that's what's in the neighborhood they're not going to pay that for it yeah so then you start losing your ass on it but there again um so then why would a recreational property so then why would the bank allow a loan like that to go through knowing that it's just like obviously the land has a value okay the value is whatever someone is willing to pay for it right anyway like i did i want to overpay ten thousand dollars an acre on this just so i get it all right right well they should know that when they go to resell it there's a good chance that they're not going to make their money back on it because they've overpaid for it. Okay. Potentially. Right. Um, and so, yeah, I, you know, I'm here, I'm, so I'm sitting here trying to argue money with a banker. <laughs> <laughs> so here's the, typically the way that works is you have to get the land appraised. Yep. So um, just for, just for round numbers, right. Say the, the property appraises for a hundred thousand mm-hmm. dollars and you want to make damn sure you get this property bought, so you offer them $150,000, okay? Yep. Well, from a banker's standpoint, I'm going to look at that, and I'm going to say, okay, well, for starters, you know, congratulations to you for having that much money because that was stupid. You pay, yep. you overpaid for the land. Yep. It's only worth $100,000, so because of that, I'm only going to loan you $80,000, because that's 80%. It's, you know, so if you want to pay 150 for it, that's fine. However, you're going to have to come up with the difference yourself. I'm going to give you 80. You can you can have to come up with the the 70 yourself. And and that's how the bank protects itself on situations like that. Um but there again, with it being such a long commitment, the risk is higher because if somebody does purchase that land, you know, it Nobody knows what's going to happen tomorrow. You know, right. I step off. I could be walking to the bank from from my truck and get ran over by a semi. Who knows? You know, so if I have a loan, a land loan somewhere, that's going to fall to somebody. Yeah. You know, and if if my nearest relative doesn't know that I have a loan against land, they're not going to make the payment. Right. Well, if they're not going to make the payment, then obviously the bank is going to be out that money. So it's things like that 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 increase the risk, again, along with the longevity of the term that that the bankers look at. So um, and typically we don't – the kind of the rule for banking is the percentage that you're allowed to loan – um, which for land, you know, that's what we're talking about. Eighty percent, you know, other things like machinery and equipment. Your the bank might have a different percentage, like seventy five percent, that you can go up to. And and typically the way the banks work is it's either the appraised value or the purchase price, whichever is less. So 
just like in that example that I gave you, the the appraised value was less than the purchase price. Okay. But if it's flipped and say the property is worth a hundred thousand or hundred and fifty thousand and you're gonna get it bought for a hundred thousand, I'm still only gonna loan you eighty thousand dollars. Okay. Because the purchase price is less than the appraised price and I can only loan you eighty percent of whichever is is the less of the two values. Okay, makes sense. Are there is, is the hey I need twenty percent down? Is is there any way around that for for purchasing land? Yes, if you're going to be the owner operator of it. Okay. So if if you're going to be the one that is going to farm it or going to ranch it, uh, run cattle on it yourself, then yes, there are ways around that. If it is going to be something that you are going to. Um, have somebody else do those then typically no okay all right so i just i see i see loophole city coming up out out of this right just like okay uh you may not have to pay the down does the down is there a way to get out of the down payment altogether uh or is it just to reduce down payment at that point if i decide i'm gonna gonna farm it uh, again it's kind of if you go through the fsa um there's ways they do what they call a 50 50 loan where the fsa will loan 50 percent of the um purchase price and you have to get matching funds from a financial institution for the other 50 percent now again you have to be the owner operator Mm -hmm. and there are a lot of stringent um, guidelines that you have to follow that basically prevent you from these loopholes. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, you know, when you're dealing with anything with the government, they're going to make sure that you have to jump through all the hoops, obviously, and they don't really give a shit about what happens to them on the backside, right? Because right. it's the government. <laughs> so you're going to have to submit your records. You're going to have to submit, you know, a personal financial statement every year, your tax returns every year. You're going to have to show um, that you have a schedule F, which is, is, you know, ag's income and expense report on your taxes. Um, And if you don't, then basically you're, they can say that you're in default of that loan and they can start a foreclosure process. Even if Um, I'm making the payments. Yes. Because if you're showing, like if that was if that was bought um, for ag purposes through a, an organization like the FSA or or any you know farm credit or anything else like that, um, and again that I'm I, I misspoke there. I'm not sure if farm credit does that or not. But if it's done through the the USDA F, FSA office, then yes, if you do not have a Schedule F and you are not showing any income and expense on that property as the owner operator, then you are in violation. And they basically say that you um, lied on all the forms mm-hmm. and you are not upholding your end. So even if you are making the payments on it, you're still in default of the loan. Okay. Typically, again, you kind of got to jump through a bunch of hoops there. And a lot of times they'll say, look, you know, you didn't have any, you didn't have any schedule F this year. So you've got one more year to figure it out, or you've got two more years to figure out whatever. Yeah. They'll kind of give you a chance to, to kind of write that ship, but yeah, they're, they're on your ass about it. So, I mean, it's, yeah. it, and especially if there's a house on it, um, now you start a whole new can of worms 
because now you start getting into even more government regulations because you're throwing around the term primary residence. Mm -hmm. So you start doing that, that starts, like I said, that's a whole other can of worms there. And, and boy, do things get messy in a hurry. Yeah. Yeah. And so here's what I've like, this is just my personal experience. It's like, Hey, uh, you know, what, what did they say? The best time to buy land was yesterday. The second best time to buy land was today. Right. And so, uh, cause prices just, they're not going down. And so, but here's the issue. Every time I get a lump sum saved up and I think it's time to start looking for land, the value of land is now going up, meaning that my, my lump sum is no longer 20% anymore. So that lump sum has to keep going up and up and up and up. And so the whole, the reason for that line of questioning was I know that I could probably, you know, I could probably pay the monthly Let's just say I'm looking at a hundred thousand uh, dollar loan loan in in total. There's a there's a piece of ground for one hundred thousand dollars. I know that I could I could pay the uh, the monthly payment on a hundred thousand dollars, but the issue is the twenty percent down payment, right? And so and so, is there a way? Because what you've just said is that fifty fifty loan plus the plus the loan for the the actual property you default on that or they say hey we're going to give you a year to fix it in the meantime you can take that and just refinance for a different interest rate under a a a, a bigger loan is, is that possible yeah that would be possible um but typically what you're losing in rate is going to make it a lot harder to pay for. Um, and, and again, depending on how long you've had that land um, or what it valued at versus what you got it purchased at, some other places, it, they're still going to want the 20% down in some way, shape, or form. So if, if you finance 100% of it, you're typically, even if you've got some of it paid down, say you're still at, at 95% of its value, most places still aren't going to touch that. And if they do, they're going to come back and they're going to say, well, you know, you're going to need to come up with X amount of dollars for us to refinance this. And um, have you ever dealt with credit unions? You ever financed a vehicle or a boat or anything like that through a credit union? Yeah. Versus like a conventional bank? Yes. Yep. It, so so you know the difference in rates and, and terms and kind of very similar on that stuff. You, you know, not really. Uh, have I? My house used to be through a credit union. We refinanced mm-hmm. it with a, com- with a commercial bank, so a regular okay. bank. So just, just for a lower interest rate. Now, right. what happened in this whole process and what we were paying versus what we were not paying at a credit the only thing I know is a credit union was like, well, we want to make sure you have a checking account with us too. And my the mm-hmm. other bank didn't give a shit. And so right. whatever, whatever that so, means. Well, and there again, that goes back to a primary residence. Primary residence is run usually off of a different set of rates. And that's kind of standardized across the board because housing is, is way heavily regulated, especially since 2008. Um, that kind of runs off of the 10-year treasury bill. Um, but when you come to consumer notes, uh, vehicles, UTVs, campers, boats, anything like that, 
I would say a solid nine out of ten times a credit union is going to be far less stringent on their policies and have a better interest rate. Now, the reason for that is because a credit union is considered a nonprofit financial institution because they're um, customer owned and any money that they make, they're supposed to give back to their customers in the form of uh, higher yields on um, accounts and lower lower rates on loans. So that's kind of the difference between, so the FSA going through them, that's like going through a credit union as far as like an auto loan. Okay. So the FSA, they're going to give you like a dirt cheap rate, you know, um, whereas then you go refinance it somewhere else, you're you're very liable to pay up to twice as much in rate. Plus, then again, you still got to come up with whatever that difference is in the down payment. Right. So there is a loophole there, but you're still going to be, it's still going to kind of hamstring you. Gotcha. All right. So let me, let me try, let me ask this question. I'm going to try to do it as smoothly as possible, but it's not going to happen. How do, how does someone buy land that is, is there a way to buy land that is the most beneficial for the purchaser? What is the best way to do that? My land most beneficial for the purchase. Oh, so. Uh, so right now, I guess, if like, I wanted to go to the bank, I'd have to pay twenty mm-hmm. down, twenty percent down, and then I'm right. su- I'm subject to the the interest rate, and for my credit, like you know my credit score, mm-hmm. uh, and then that would that would spit me out, uh, you know whatever the terms were. Is there an easier right. way than that? No, no, okay. not really. Okay, because you're like I said, if if you go another route, and that's you know kind of like we were talking about with the FSA stuff, they're going to make you jump through so many hoops. Yeah, but they give you a far better interest rate for it. Yeah. So it's kind of a kind of like the you know is the juice worth the squeeze? Yeah, because you're getting a, a far better rate, whereas. If you're going through a conventional bank, you have the money to put down, just go through them, pay your yeah. 20% down, you do the loan and roll on. Right. Um, so do, do food plots count as as uh, me being a farmer? No. No, no I tried that. <laughs> <laughs> I've now, tried what if that. I plant a whole field and just not combine it? Um, no, but what you can, what you could do that a lot of people don't think of is um, – like hay production, mm-hmm. you can plant alfalfa, and so go in there and cut hay and sell could sell the hay. Yeah, yeah. you know, uh, and alfalfa is a good food plot. Um, so start a hay business. There you go. <laughs> you're you're now you're now an owner operator. You're using a food plot and you're getting something off of it. Yeah. Um, you know something like that. Um, I plant no, apple trees uh, and I, then just sell one apple pie a year. Well, nope. I've tried that too. Uh, <laughs> so I'm glad I you're here because I'm. <laughs> I, I've looked into this the same way that you've talked about because okay. I myself like that's what that's what a lot of people forget. Us bankers, um, we're not the stodgy asshole on the other side of the desk. You know, we're consumers too. Yeah. You know, so I'm kind of the same way. I. I I couldn't afford a down payment on something and I've, I've wanted to buy land and do this and do that with it. Cause 
you know, I'm fun side note here. Um, I'm a country boy. I rode bulls for 15 years. I grew up rodeoing all that kind of stuff. So my whole life has been in ag and yeah, my brother and I have land that, that our grandpa passed down to us. That's purely for hunting. I would also like to have land so I could run cattle. Yeah. You know, that's, that's my goal and my dream. Well, that puts me on the consumer side of things too. Um, and I say all that to say, I've talked to the FSA about trying to buy a house in, in 40 acres and run cattle on it. And I'm like, well, you know, I can afford to buy, you know, five head and put on there. I got told no. And because five head is not quote unquote, a significant investment. And I'm like, well, it is for me. I'm like, that's, that's, that would be a significant to go out, take money out of my pocket to buy, you know, you're talking $10,000 worth of cattle and make sure the fences are good and all that kind of stuff. That would be a significant investment for me. But FSA says, no, it's got to be a much, it's got to be a significant amount. And again, who knows? It's the government. You don't know what significant classifies as until they tell you that you hit that limit. So, right. And at the same time, I bet you there's other people who they looked at their thing and, and they didn't care that it was just five head. It's very objective. Right. Yeah. 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 Whatever. But the government. Yeah. Right. <laughs> but typically in those types of instances, like the FSA, I guess I did leave out one stipulation is the FSA makes you go to other financial institutions and basically get turned down by them before you can apply for their programs because it is a government program it is subsidized subsidized through tax dollars you do have to make an effort and typically how people get around that is most commercial banks for land non-primary residences cannot do a 30-year fixed rate loan that they will keep on the books so they say no in order for you to cash flow you've got to have a 30-year amortization you're not going to qualify with us. And then the customer goes back and goes, nope, FSA, sorry. They told me, the bank told me that I wouldn't qualify without a 30-year fixed rate. That's what I need from you. And then FSA goes, okay, you qualify now. We'll look at your stuff, you know, or you're able to apply for this program. We'll look at your stuff and see if you qualify type of thing. So that is kind of a the caveat, a big caveat that I forgot there. But just seems so complex. Like, it seems so complex. Like, I I just feel like and there's so many things that go way over my head when it comes to purchasing land or refinancing a home or, or getting a loan for a vehicle where I just, I'm just like, I'm that dumbass who just signs his name, right? Without reading, without reading anything. And so, I got, am I wrong? In saying, like, if I wanted to get a loan from a bank, they should literally just look at my income and how much money I may currently have in the bank and go, yes or no, this guy should get a loan. Not like all this other jazz that has to go in, into it. I don't know. Banking, in no, me, um, I don't know. Yeah, I would say no, because, again, being on the banker side of that, yeah. um, there's a lot of things to consider. Um if it's consumer related, they're going off of your credit report. Mm -hmm. um, they look at your typically your W-2 income. They look at your credit report and they look at what we call your debt to income ratio, Yep. your DTI. If you go commercial side, which is in ag is included in commercial, they 
you have to give three years of tax returns, a personal financial statement, a credit report, and then we look at what we call debt service coverage, which is the actual inverse of the DTI ratio. Right. Um, so basically you're looking at somebody's credit worthiness is what they call it, but you're looking at their ability to repay their debts. Um, and you know, because believe it or not, there's people that make a lot of money that are shit when it comes to managing finances. Yeah. So, you know, that's, that's the kind of thing. And, and then you've, you know, there's other people that are, you know, frugal as hell and, they could sit here and write a tr write a check to buy you a new truck, me a new truck, and them a new house. You know, and it's yeah. like, it, you know, yeah. Um, so that's really kind of what it's what um, financial institutions are looking at. Gotcha. Well, Cody, man, I really appreciate you taking time out of your day to uh, hop on and and talk to us a little bit about Kansas and and in the process of getting a loan for for uh a piece of property um man uh i hope someday that i can get that that 20 like get the 20 percent that i need and then i can start shopping but before i make my decision lane will go up and i'll need more 20 percent. so <laughs> so um well and not to I, I i know you probably were probably taking this a little bit longer but real fast one thing that you can do um is buy a smaller piece of property that's cheaper yep get it fixed up and then flip it mm -hmm. keep it for a few years because it is going to appreciate in most cases you know um whether that means you fix the fence on it you put a trail through it you put a food plot on it whatever you could buy a 20 and then sell it and then take that money and use that as your down payment for your 40. Mm -hmm. buy a 40 acre piece do the same thing and and just continuously flip properties to get there that's actually a, a very um logical and logistical way to do that yeah um yeah or, or fiscal way sorry is there is there something when was it like a a, a c c something where you could the first time you sell a, a property you can then transfer that debt to you know like to a new property without having to pay the 20 percent down or something like that or um no what you're thinking of is called a 1031 exchange on your taxes yes so what you do is if you don't keep that property for i can't remember if it's like two or five uh two to three or two to five years something like that if you sell it for a profit you have to pay what we call capital gains on it mm -hmm. um so to avoid that, you're given a time frame to where you can take those profits, and as long as you roll it into another piece of property um, within that given time frame, you do not pay taxes on it. Gotcha. And and that's called a 1031 exchange. Now, again, I'm not a CPA. Um, don't quote me on those because right, right. Uh, go talk go talk to your accountant first um, before you do those types of things. Um, but that is that is one thing that that people can do. Um, and, and really, it's, it's again, six of one, half a dozen of the other, because the only way to get out of that is you're going to lose that money somewhere. So either you're going to sell another property and you're not going to make a profit on it, so you don't have anything to pay taxes on, or 
you're going to continue to make profits on properties and when you stop buying and stop rolling that over you're eventually going to the taxes are going to catch up with you one way or the other so right. again the government's got to get their piece absolutely absolutely all right we're going to end it thank you very much for your time today and good luck this upcoming season man all right thanks man you too appreciate it and there you have it huge shout out to cody huge shout out to all of you for taking time out of your day to uh, download and listen please go to itunes leave a five-star review let everybody know how awesome this podcast is please uh also, make sure you're following on Instagram. If you have a big buck story that you want to share or just an awesome hunting story that you want to share, please reach out to me and I would love to, uh, you know, have you on the podcast. I love, I love stories. I love storytelling. I love getting information out of people. If you've been on a, a heater and you've, you've found success over the last five, six, seven, 10 years, 20 years, uh, I'd love to hear how you do it. So uh, reach out to me and uh, I, I pretty much say yes to everybody who uh, reaches out to me. So I'm looking forward to that and uh, take huge shout out to Tethered Wasp Vortex Hunt Stand and the Woodman's Pal. Uh, if you guys have any questions about those brands, hit me up via Instagram and that's it. Good vibes in, good vibes out, and we'll talk to you next time. Thank you.